Once upon a time, there was a young woman named Elise who wanted to see the entire world and all the stories within it. One day, she met a white rabbit who asked her to come along for a journey of discovery. Welcome to Elise in Wonderland. Everyone, my name is Elise, and I'm the host of Elise in Wonderland. This is a show for those curious about the world, travel, culture, and new perspectives. Today, we have a guest uh, who, in many respects, is a collector of perspectives, and I'm convinced has lived more than one lifetime. Jamshed, Jamshed Terrell is the coordinator of the Mohawk College Music Program, and when I first met him a few years back, I was struck by his depth of knowledge of world music and his passion for technology. When I finally dug a little deeper, I learned that Jamshed's passion for music composition has taken him all over the world, from India to Indiana and everywhere in between. He speaks English, French, Hindi, and Gujarati, and has been fluent in Arabic, Urdu, and German. You have to know a lot of languages in a lifetime to have been fluent. <laughs> and at age 13, Jamshed was the youngest player admitted to the Bombay Chamber Orchestra, toured the world, eventually performing in orchestra pits on Broadway, composing for television and movies for the likes of Disney, Cartoon Network, National Geographic, and the NFB, just to name a few. He's told me that what he's learned is that when you have choices, you are fortunate to have choices. It's more so what you make of the choices that matter. He now helps to bring this experience to the classroom, no doubt fostering his same excitement in others and inspiring new musicians to create and explore their potential careers. I've had a very hard time limiting my questions today because there's just so much to possibly discuss in one hour. Today we will talk to Jamshad about what it's like to move from place to place growing up, what the experience of working in the industry has been for him, and what excites him today. I'm so happy to introduce our guest to you, and we're lucky to have you here in the studio, Jamshad. Welcome. Thank you, Elise. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. We are so excited. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start the show by digging in where naturally you begin at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about um, where you were born and your move to Dubai? Sure. So I, I was born in Mumbai, India, which is where mm -hmm. my parents are from. Yes. So they have, they actually, they'd already moved uh, to Dubai. Now, um, though I was born in Mumbai, for the most part, my parents were already living in Dubai. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting because you have to realize this is Dubai. That's nothing like what Dubai is right now. Yes. Um, and and one of the great stories I like to tell is you know when I was ten, I, I pretty much grew up for the most part, at least my youth, in Dubai, uh, when it really was a desert. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories I love to tell is is you know we did a class trip when I was ten years old. This is in elementary school. We took a class trip to the World Trade Center in Dubai. And the World Trade Center at the time was the tallest building in the entire Middle East. Wow. And this building... Certainly has changed today. Well, it, do you know, this building was 30 stories high. Oh, my goodness. Now, firstly, I'd also say my naivety at the time. 
you know, you felt like you're on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And literally, you look out from the World Trade Center and what you see is desert, 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 water. <laughs> and that was Dubai. Wow. And that was the Dubai that I grew up in. It had around 400,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, and what age were you when you moved? To Dubai or, um, so I was, like I said, my parents were already living there. So yeah. re realistically, I was actually around one and a half years old oh, wow. by the time that my parents took me back from when I was born in India, yeah. which is where the majority of the rest of my family, my cousins, my mm -hmm. aunts, my uncles, my grandparents were. Um, though we would always, we would, at least when I was young, we would always spend the summers and winters at least partially in India. Mm -hmm. So there was always an importance for my parents to have both my brother and myself, I have a brother who's two years older, and it was really important for them that we know our heritage, know our Indian roots, and also know our extended family that's there in India. So you moved to Dubai, at, well, transition back and forth, right. but have roots in India. And from Dubai, you somehow get inspired to love classical music. There's not a lot of <laughs> classical music in the Middle East. How did your passion for um, exploring your eventual career in music begin? So it's, it's interesting. So in Dubai, um, there was the one at least one English radio station. Yes. That was it when I was growing up. I remember FM 92. That was the radio station. Um, and they played all different kinds of music and they had different kind of hours upon which they, they um, at which they played this music. There was one radio station. By the way, there was also only one TV station, Channel 33. Do you remember that? I, I don't know why I remember that. Right? I didn't even watch that much television. Um, but I do remember Channel 33, and it would have the news, it would have a Hindi movie, it would have an Arabic movie, it would have um, normally some kind of American soap opera. Like it, it had to cover all the genres for all the expats who were in Dubai, and there was mm -hmm. such a cosmopolitan range of people there. And it was the same with the radio. So there was a jazz hour, there was a classical hour, there was... Um, I, th I mean, I'd literally call it an 80s ABBA hour. It basically just played ABBA music for, for the entire hour. And that was wonderful. <laughs> um, it was British top, you know, top 40 British, American top 40. So we had all of these different times. Um, and, you know, I must have been two or three years old. And I, and I stayed up. The classical hour was from 11 p.m. till 1230. Yeah, it wasn't exactly an hour, um, but it was late at night. And I don't know why, maybe we were up because of a party, but for some reason I was up late and we were listening to the radio and I was just mesmerized. I don't know, it's the, the combination of the sounds. I really can't remember. I, I, I can't get that deep. I was two or three <laughs> years old. Um, but something struck you. <laughs> something really struck me. And apparently I, I started negotiating with my parents that I could stay up so I could listen to classical hour. So I'd actually go to bed early. <laughs> and then they would wake me up so I could listen to classical hour mm -hmm. and then I'd go back to bed. Mm -hmm. uh, so clearly something always what resonated with me. bratty kid you are. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Wanting to stay up for classical hour. <laughs> and th there was still though, at least let's say in terms of classical music, there really wasn't a scene there. Mm -hmm. And then when I was six years old, I was in elementary school and... Uh, the Syrian violinist had just moved to Sharjah, which is the neighboring emirate to, um, to Dubai. And he came around to all the schools to play 
the violin and see if any students were interested. And he came in and he played the violin. And it was just, at least it, it, it just blew my mind. I, I mean, I guess it, perhaps to a degree, it was also my first time really seeing classical music performed live. Mm -hmm. And I was so mesmerized. I took his form that he gave us, took it straight home to my parents. And I said, I would love to take music lessons. Um, my mum was really gung-ho for it. Actually, so was my dad. Uh, and they said, sure, let's sign you up. And I ended up becoming this teacher's first student. Wow. Which is, which is kind of remarkable. And we've had a wonderful, his name is Riyad Kutsi. We've had a wonderful relationship ever since. I was a student for just under 10 years. Uh, and we've always kept in touch. He's still in Dubai, still teaching. He has his own string academy now. And it's kind of remarkable. Have you um, ever gone back since? I have a few times, yeah. yeah. I really have, um, and performed as well in Dubai and performed with his, with his group and done some masterclasses with his group. Amazing. Uh, and it's really, really wonderful. Actually, um, he, he has done so much, I think, to raise awareness for classical music in Dubai. Uh, really, the scene that's there currently right now, I, I genuinely think wouldn't be half of what it is without his efforts mm -hmm. to really support, especially education in classical music with the youth. And so violin then became your instrument of choice. Is that correct? I think, yeah, by de facto, right? Because yeah. it was the one that was being offered. But but there was something I really loved about it. Now, the interesting part is he, um, the, he didn't really speak a lot of English. He just moved from Syria. His main languages were Arabic and French. And it was great because it actually really meant I had to brush up on my Arabic and French. Right. Um, and he got to learn English in, in, in turn. But, um, but I, you know what? Funnily enough, we never really had a communication issue. Is there something kind of beyond spoken language that you can learn when you learn music from someone else? Do you know, I, I think so. I, I'll be honest. Again, when you're six years old, perhaps it's a little more he does it, I just imitate it. Um, <laughs> we are getting pretty deep. <laughs> um, rather than necessarily um, Some something that's... Yeah, right. uh, but I do think at at least um, at a deeper level, yes, there is actually an advantage to that because you're not caught into the limitations of vocabulary. Right. Right. You're you're more caught up with the sonic element of what this sounds like and then trying to replicate that mm -hmm, sound. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was that probably did have its advantages. I wonder if that same experience has inspired you to provide that same outlet or um, almost opportunity for students that you work with today. I mean, obviously, they've enrolled in a music program. They have an interest they come with, but. Uh, would you say that there's some connection where you maybe I'm maybe I'm no, connecting you know, to what he does? Well, but. no, I you know I don't I, I don't know if it's direct, but I I certainly think you know one of the things that I loved about studying violin and mm -hmm. just about my time in Dubai. I'm going to be honest. I I think I am one of the most fortunate people because I had parents who very much supported my music. And if there was an orchestra that I could play with, or if there was a concert that I could go to, they were 100% mm -hmm. always supportive of me going for that. 
um, and they would go out of their way to make sure that I could do that. I, you know, it, uh, you've um, told me before that that wasn't a very common path for your family to take. No, no, it wasn't, right? And um, I don't know if they, at least when I was starting, mm-hmm. if they ever thought that it would be a career as much as just they wanted to fuel the passion that I had. Right, right. And and I think the other the other really important part was I had teachers who also very much supported that. I mean, my violin teacher would take me to to concerts all the time, mm-hmm. right? I had teachers at school who would arrange for us to go to concerts, who would arrange concerts for us to perform anytime we had something ready. They would get um, they would arrange a concert so that we could perform, and they would bring people out for these concerts. Um, concerts that just hadn't taken place before right. in Dubai or at their school. Um, and there was a group of four of us, actually. There was a group, a little more than four, but, but four really keen people at my high school um, who really loved classical music. And we had this high school teacher. Her name was Valerie Crow. And You have a great memory. <laughs> do you know, I, I think it's easy to remember people who've really shaped your life. Yeah, yeah. And... She, she, I think she saw the creative spark in us and she went out of her way to make sure that we were always able to realize that spark. Mm-hmm. And that was really important for her. So, I mean, one of the things that she really did that, that just opened my horizons to so much was she arranged for us to go to England um, for two weeks of summer camp and then one week beforehand where we just went around London and we went to the proms for the first time and we went uh, to go watch uh, my first West End musical, which was Les Miserables, which was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And so this brings me to my next topic and question for you, actually. You eventually moved to England to attend a boarding school there for music. I did, yes. How did that transition happen? Obviously, you were (laughs) taken with this path. You've had all the opportunities and support to get you here. You've had a preview of England Yes. So, do you know, the decision to go to England, I think, was um, it was precipitated by a couple of factors. Uh, one, I had this preview of what England was and, and um, to be exposed to that level of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're comparing it to a well, literal just, desert. Well, yes, you know what? And it's just, I would say it's a different culture. I, I, let course. me be more specific. That, uh, that To be exposed to an element of Western culture that was so in line with what I was passionate about at the time mm-hmm. um, was remarkable. The fact that they have, you know, I was in London. They have seven major symphony orchestras in this one city. The history of classical music alone in this part of the world. Right, just yeah. incredible. And then now you combine that with the artistic history and the architectural history that's also there. And the there is a real pride, I think, that British people take in preserving their cultural heritage, mm-hmm. which is really wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so being exposed to that, um, being exposed to the fact that so many people, so many artists from all around the world are coming through this one city. I think, again, compared to what was the relatively small city of Dubai at the time, it, it certainly blew my mind. Right. Um, then the fact that I wanted to get more serious about my studies in music. And... 
um, a few people had mentioned to me about going to England. The real, the real kind of deciding factor was, well, you know, we have, um, we have these exams, right? Like we have here with Royal Conservatory System. We have exams that you periodically do and, and you play for an external examiner who comes. So we had external examiners coming from England. And I did one of these exams. And at the end of my exam, the examiner uh, went up to my teacher and said uh, to him, I'm going to make a phone call to Yehudi Menuhin at the Menuhin School, and you need to get this boy to go to England. Hmm. He, needs, he needs to be in that environment. And I think that really um, drew my attention to England as a possibility. Uh, I think it also... I think made it just a little bit more tangible for my parents. You know, it's it's hard to convince your parents, regardless of the ethnicity. I mean, yes, my family, being a traditional Indian family, wasn't exactly gung-ho about a musician. Right. Um, but I think in general, most families don't think, wow, you know what, musician, that would be a great career for my kid. There's so many unknowns, <laughs> there's so many directions, and it's it seems like a career path that... It could take many forms. Right? It can. It, it's, it's, it's the uncertainty, right, yeah. that often comes in because it's not a regular salaried position. Most musicians work in a freelance situation, which means you're perpetually fighting for a position. Mm -hmm. um, in certain countries, we're actually quite fortunate in Canada because there's a lot of public funding available for the arts. That's not always the case in many other countries either. Right. Um, so I, I, I understand, let's say, sometimes the hesitation to go into music. This made it more palatable. I think so, family. because for, for them, there was a certain external validation that maybe... Of course. And other people are looking out kid, for you here. Yeah, maybe yeah. this kid can actually do it. And, and the other thing, for me at least, it was to be in an environment where you can perform with others to have I mean my school but the boarding school that I ended up going to was Cheetham School of Music which was absolutely wonderful 280 students between the ages of 8 and 18 all of whom audition and get in on music right so all of whom are 100% are mm -hmm. passionate about music mm -hmm. I can imagine where you had come from you kind of felt like a little bit of an outsider especially from a family that wasn't musicians themselves and now coming into a block of people that all feel the same thing you spoke about you know walking down the street singing four-part harmonies what? how how fun is that right that seems like a wonderland for i just loved it i soaked up as much as i could when i was there i loved the environment i loved being around um students who were that passionate about music who loved just playing all the time. We could just, you know, just anytime you wanted to, because it was a boarding school. Anytime you wanted to, you just say, okay, guys, let's go, let's go read a string quartet. You could actually do that. And you'd have people who'd be like, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. That's the other thing, right? You really have people who are just like, yeah. Yeah. And they could. Can you, ta can you speak a little bit about some of the, the differences right off the bat that you notice culture shock wise when you were coming from Dubai? I know you mentioned there's some things that you take for granted as being normal in Islamic culture, like uh, Ramadan, where you don't eat in public or having Friday as a national <laughs> holiday. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in a country where Friday is the national holiday. And, you know, it took me so long 
to adjust to the concept of Sunday being a national and it's a national holiday. And it seems so strange, right? You're just literally changing the day. Um, but, but I could really, imagine if it just became now Monday for me, it would be. I don't, I don't know why, right? Yeah. Like I said, it's, I don't but it know also if makes something... you think, like, why Sunday? <laughs> yes, right. Well, I mean, I think for the same reason as Friday, it just becomes, it comes from a, from a initially from a religious right, standpoint, right, right. that becomes a norm. Mm. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it's kind of an arbitrary assignment of, of sure. a label of a day. Yet it still, at least psychologically, took a while for me to adjust to it. <laughs> uh, but, but beyond the Friday to, to Sunday thing, I think... Um, some of the some of the things that I took for certain for granted is um, Dubai is very cosmopolitan. Even when I was growing up there, even with a population of four hundred thousand, there are mm. so many groups, and the numbers of those groups are so evenly distributed that you don't really have a sense of majority and minorities. Mm-hmm. And that's. That's something that's quite hard. There isn't like a locals versus immigrants. Well, yeah, yes and no. You know what? Um, on the one hand, there are locals and, and certainly the, the expats, the people who are not locals are granted an immigration status that makes it very clear that they aren't locals. So we don't, you know, when I was right. growing up, you couldn't own property. Oh, okay. You couldn't own property. I mean, I viewed myself as, as essentially someone from Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, Though, yes, I can't own property, there's no voting, um, you can't go to public school. There, there were all these kind of regulations that were in place. But I think, again, growing up in that, you become so accustomed to it that you don't necessarily think about those things. Right. Um, now coming to, to England, you suddenly realize, you know, that, that you take for granted that you're going to have a Thai restaurant followed by an Indian restaurant followed by a Chinese restaurant. But no, it's just one fish and chip shop followed by another fish and chip shop followed by another fish and chip shop. Um, <laughs> I think that's changed over the years. Yeah. Uh, but at least when I was there, um, that was, I think, one of the one of the changes that I had to uh, get get accustomed to. Um, you know, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to say. There's certain other things. Uh, there's a certain liberty in the way in which people approach life that you just don't have necessarily in Dubai. Hmm. But again, I think as a kid, you become immune to that because you just grow up in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so in, in it that sense... It just becomes another layer that you understand as a norm. As a norm. Else. Right. Till you really start seeing other elements. So a great example of that, at least my first time voting, I, I say this because it's actually election day today. Yes, everyone listening, <laughs> please go vote if right. you haven't already. <laughs> um, my first time voting was the federal, the last federal election. Hmm. It was my first time in my life that I was able to vote. Really? Um, which is such a strange feeling for me. Mm-hmm. Right? I've never been in a position to be able to vote before. So how does it feel? <laughs> I guess maybe it has been know, enough time. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I guess some people, um, you know, again, you're, I'm coming from a very fortunate position. I don't come from a from a dictatorship which was sure. um, in you know in, in tatters or, or from a particularly difficult country. Um, 
So it's it's strangely anticlimactic compared to what you see in the Hollywood films. <laughs> right, like, no, you're I'm just going to go into a liberty. booth. I yeah. know. You're just going to go into a booth, vote for the person, and leave. That's a, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I I say that, and at the same time, it is somewhat empowering. Hmm. It is somewhat empowering because you, in a small monicum of a way, are contributing towards the future of the country. And now coming back full circle to what you said before, I, I think that's one of the things that I just love about education is that in my mind, what we do as educators is contribute towards the development of the next generation. Yeah. And we hope to leave the world in a better place than we found it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all we can really strive for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel that every single day you step into the classroom, or have there been um, moments that have struck you that you know <laughs> have a, has a student come back years later and said, "Wow, you really affected me," or have you seen someone on stage performing that's made a huge strides in their practice? I'm sure there are so many yes. small examples. Yes, there basis. are. Yes, there are. You're right, and um, all the way from from students who. Um, have have conquered unsurmountable odds right. to perform incredibly on stage um, or to even just cross that convocation stage or even just sometimes make it into the classroom every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, this, is this what you expected teaching would be? Or is this something that has come with some time in the classroom? I think it's come, I think the maturity of teaching has come with time in the classroom. I, I'll be honest, I think initially, and this is not going back, oh, I'm, I'm skipping all over the place, but, but okay. I, I taught at McGill for a while yeah. uh, when I was a student there, and I also taught. Um, and I think on one hand, I, I always enjoyed teaching. I always enjoyed the act of, of um, sharing with others. And I think there's two reasons for that, but but beyond those, and I'll get back to those two reasons, but I think beyond that, initially, there's a little bit of, of power that you have as teaching. And I think I quite enjoyed that power, honestly, mm-hmm. if I'm being really honest. And there's, there's an egotistical element that comes into that. Mm-hmm. Um, Imparting your wisdom. Right. You know, right. kind of, kind of sharing your knowledge with these, with these, well, you have to think that you have something learn. good to say if you're, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. Um, but it's, yeah, I know, right? So, um, and it's taken me a while to, to, let's say, um, transcend that into something that's a little more realizing the act of sharing with someone is about giving them the empowerment to achieve their goals mm-hmm. and in itself that that is more satisfying than necessarily just the feeling of accomplishment in oneself. Yeah, you've seen them transform um, from just inputting your information and but actually using it and creating something of their own. Right. Out of it. And and giving them the confidence that they need to do that. You know, I mean, there's... um. There's something that we say. So I, I remember I, I was I was um, talking to a class and, and we were talking about humility, right, in musicians. And, and we talk about how sometimes, well, do musicians really need humility? And, mm. and I think I said maybe there's a little bit of a misunderstanding here. I don't think um, 
I think we need to clarify that humility and confidence are not polar opposites. Confidence is believing that what you have to say is meaningful. I think humility is believing that what others say is also important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both go hand in hand. And both go hand in hand. It's when we close ourselves to what others are saying that we start showing ignorance. And then ignorance combined with confidence can lead to arrogance. That's and dangerous. that's what we have to avoid. Yeah, and I would imagine if you are working with musicians trying to compose something together, you always have to be attuned to everyone else literally attuned as you play, but taking feedback in on how you're going to be performing together. Absolutely. I think you always, you perpetually have to be open. And I think it's for any artist. Hmm. You, your stimulus comes from your surroundings. And the more open you are to those surroundings, the more you can absorb that, Hmm. the more um, informed both uh, in terms of knowledge and in terms of emotion, your art becomes. Right. It becomes more about the world and less about you. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to... Yeah. <laughs> coming... Sorry. <laughs> we went to another planet there for a second. Coming back to your... We're, so in your narrative of Jamshed, we're, we're wrapping up your experience in England um, at this boarding school. And I, I want to play a piece of music that you sent to me, which okay. is the Tchaikovsky piece. The Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony. Yes. Can yeah. you speak a little bit about why you chose this song? Sure. So, you know, th- this really, I have to tell you, this symphony um, comes back so often in my life in so many meaningful ways. I, uh, And, you know, we can say it's coincidence. We can say that there's something in the universe that's drawing it back to me. But you remember I talked about that trip that I took when I was 14, my, my, um, my teacher from Dubai who arranged for us to go to those summer camps. Well, the first thing that we did, we all went together and we went to the, uh, the first day that we arrived in London, we went to the Royal Albert Hall that evening. And it was for the BBC proms. It was in the middle of summer. It was the BBC proms. And it was for a symphony orchestra concert. And the highlight piece of the second half was the Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony. And this would have been my first time hearing a world-class orchestra performing a symphony. And Elise, I think, I, I, I literally just sat on the edge of my seat the entire 45 minutes of the symphony. Now, we're not going to listen to 45 minutes of the symphony. Um, but I may need to, I just, <laughs> for the listeners out there, I may need to cut it a little short. But, but I do yeah. encourage everyone to go, see, uh, to go listen to it. But I was just on the edge of my seat the entire time. I think literally my mouth was hanging open the entire time. And it was a whirlwind of sound. It's, it's you know, that, that feeling of amazement that you get when you're a kid and you first walk into a planetarium, maybe that's just me, but when you first encounter, you know, you, you, you first see something that is just mind-blowingly beyond what you could ever imagine. That was the feeling I had wow. listening to this symphony being performed in London, um, I said, for the first time. And then, honestly, the most amazing thing was the next week we started our first summer camp 
and the main piece that we were learning at the summer camp was this symphony. Of course it was. I didn't know that going into the summer camp. We get there and they announced that it's this symphony. And oh, I was just on cloud nine that entire week. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. So um, it was just an incredible sensation to be able to go from hearing this amazing piece of music performed by an incredible orchestra to now a week later for the first time being surrounded completely by semi-professional musicians learning this piece and performing it for the public in a week um, and then to really complete this full circle my final concert at boarding school was sure enough our, or our orchestra did this symphony Again, just pure coincidence, but it came back and we did this symphony. And it was such a wonderful way to conclude uh, the last of the time that I would live in England. Amazing. What a perfect piece to play. So everyone sit back, close your eyes, imagine yourself as Jamshad as a child, overwhelmed with joy. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks. Welcome back to Elise in Wonderland on 101.5 The Hawk. It is 5.38 and we are chatting with Jamshed again. Um, and we were both just holding our heads, th talking about how incredible it is when you hear an amazing piece of art or music and it gives you that feeling, that transcendental feeling. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the next move after England. Um, can you... Tell me a little bit about how you got to Indiana. And I'm sure so many people would ask, why Indiana? Why Indiana? It's a, it's a fascinating move. You know, I think one thing just to mention is, is it's actually one of the best music programs hmm. in the United States. Um, and the move to Indiana was, was really because of a teacher. So when, when I was in England, we had, a, we always had guest master classes. Uh, and one of the teachers who came to give the guest master class was a gentleman by the name of Mauricio Fuchs. He was a violinist and he came in and he worked uh, um, with a couple of students, including me. Mm -hmm. And I was, as, as I've, I think I said for most of my things in my life, I was floored. I was so impressed. <laughs> what are by you this. floored I, by? I know, right? I just, everything in my life I get floored by. <laughs> um, but but it was so impressive his ability to assess the technical side of violin playing and combine it into something that was meaningful and bring out the musicality of someone was just incredible and so after my master after my my master class with him he ended up staying for lunch at the at the school, which is, I'm sure, the only time he ever stayed in a British school for lunch. Um, <laughs> yeah, British boarding school lunch is not exactly the gastronomic Insert feast British that you expect. Yeah. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I'm glad that he did because I ended up going up to him at lunch and, and I spoke with him a little bit. I spoke about, you know, well, what should my next moves be? And he said, you know what, uh, if you'd like to come and study with me at Indiana, I can help arrange that. And I said, that just sounds fantastic. So um, I, I did also spend some time doing some research. I did go out to Indiana in the summer beforehand, uh, go visit it. And it was beautiful. It's such a, a spectacular campus. Mm. Um, it was in the Midwest, right? Literally in, in, in the middle of, of the United States. 
but it was a beautiful campus and I loved that I could also pursue some of my computer science interests alongside my music, which I think was also a big relief to my parents. Um, <laughs> you can fall back on that. Yeah. <laughs> that was always an important thing for them. And, and, and I understand. And the fact is, actually, I never, you know, it's so funny because I teach music technology now at Mohawk. But in my mind, computer science, at least when I was studying it at Indiana and music were two very separate elements. And I just never really thought to combine them. So you have combined them. I did, yes. I have. I combined them professionally when I was working, especially in film music. Hmm. Um, okay, and then we'll talk now a little become, bit about that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and now that's become an element of what I love to teach. Yeah. And I love music technology. And I don't know if maybe just the technology at the time didn't inspire me or I was um, short-sighted in terms of what one could do. Uh, but like I said, I kept them as very separate elements of my life at the time. Hmm. What was living in Indiana like? compared to where you had lived in the past? So Bloomington, Indiana, a college town, um, which was very basketball-centric. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a sport that I was used to. Uh, no cricket, which I loved. Uh-huh. Um, do you know what? It was... It was... I, I, it was really incredible. Um, I think... One of the reasons for that is, is again, I made it my mission to make the most out of my time there. Mm -hmm. So they had a, um, a great ballroom dancing scene, so I took ballroom lessons. They had a great swing music scene, so I took swing dancing lessons. Uh, they had a fantastic art historian teaching at Indiana, so I took art history classes because I heard about this guy. Um, I loved living in Indiana. I loved the people that I got to meet there. Um, I think... You've told me in previous conversations that people in Indiana were very welcoming and were fascinated by your history, whereas I think the Midwest gets a bad rap for not for being, being close-minded, right? Yeah. Sometimes, and maybe that's maybe that's partly because I was in a college town that has so many international students mm -hmm. that just inevitably people around that area are more welcoming. Um, Maybe that's and and or maybe it's just the people that I surrounded myself with mm. were those who tended to be really open and fascinated. But yeah. I would get questions all the time about my life in England, about my life in India. I had people who wanted to visit those areas. I, I went on trips uh, with some of my colleagues. I think also being in university, being of being you know going through the university system, you start forming friendships right that mm -hmm. that do last through time because mm -hmm. these are the people who firstly you're developing your career with but also end up becoming part of your um part of the people who whom which you collaborate in the future as mm -hmm. part of your professional life mm -hmm. so developing those relationships is really important You've also mentioned that there's a couple things that you had that completely missed your radar in terms of certain um, phrases people use. <laughs> Do you know, I'll, I'll be honest, one of the phrases that just still gets me lost is what's up, right? <laughs> or I guess it's contracted now to just sup, sup, because apparently what's up, the contraction in itself is too much. Um, <laughs> and and uh, the first time I heard it, Elise, I had no idea what this meant. And maybe that's just my up? lack of... I did look up. I was uh, funnily enough. He said it when I was in an elevator. 
All right. So I was already in an elevator, choosing to go up to another floor, and he comes in and says, "What's up?" And all I can think is, the, the is fifth this floor? A, is this, yeah. Is, does that mean that he wants to go one floor up? Does that mean he's asking if it's going up? So I just said, "Yeah, going up." <laughs> and and I, and I and I he just gave me the strangest look. It ended up actually being my roommate, funnily enough. That's amazing. So at least <laughs> um, you had time to explain later on what the heck was going on. I know, but but you know, I'll be honest. At least that that phrase still gets me confused. I I still don't know. Is is it a greeting? I think some people say "What's up" as just yeah. "sup," as as a way of saying hello. Yeah. Some people literally mean it as "How are you doing?" What's going on in your life? Right. Yeah. It's I a nice way to con- contractualize the words, but also all the meanings into one thing. Yes, yeah. So you're too used to proper British, I think. <laughs> uh, there was also the bagel incident. <laughs> the bagel incident. So I had never seen a bagel before having breakfast at my dorm in university for the first time. And the bagel completely perplexed me. Um, because my, my brain couldn't wrap my head around the idea that there was a, there was a whole piece of bread, but I mean a full piece of bread there for 60 cents. And right next to it, there was a piece of bread that had a hole punched into it. And it was 39 cents more. It was 99 cents. <laughs> and I was just like, why are you charging me 99, uh, charging me 39 more cents to put a hole in my piece of bread? Right? What kind of scam are you trying to run here at this dorm? So uh, you're charging me more. For the listeners out there, Jamshad casually mentioned he had sent an email tirade to his friend about what he's learned in Indiana. I made him dig it up for me. It's addressed in 1999, and it has some amazing statements within it. Um, but we don't have time to recap that email. Okay. So before we go into our next song, um, you're Unfortunately, I have to skip over a couple of things in Indiana, but you uh, start working in New York. This is like a, a huge springboard moment for you into your career from Indiana, where you start performing with ensembles. You start your career in film and television, um, and you also get introduced to working with Disney. Could you speak yeah. a little bit about why we're going to play the Beauty and the Beast prologue now as a transition <laughs> into the next phase? Sure. So um, when I was in Indiana, I, I had already started kind of freelancing and, and working in various parts of the United States, and I was getting invitations to go perform in other places. Um, and then it, it ended up with me moving to New York. So I was invited to become the concertmaster as a guest initially, concertmaster of the Ensemble du Monde in New York. Um, and that kind of springboarded my desire to to move there on a more permanent basis and and start a, a career there, mm-hmm. uh, performing. And that's that's what I ostensibly started doing. So I was um, uh, playing now in certain ensembles, in certain orchestras, as you were saying, starting to play on Broadway, uh, touring show, uh, shows and things like that. And one of the first touring shows that I got to perform with was Beauty and the Beast. Amazing. Um, and it was such an incredible experience. Now, I had always been fascinated by, by Disney. I, this was a movie. Beauty and the Beast was really the first movie, uh, when I was a kid that I watched and that I really paid attention to the music. Mm. That prologue just drew me in so much 
to the story that was there. And I remember just being so impressed by how just a single piece of music like that could capture the essence of what this story was about and about how it could express the change that's happening mm-hmm. um, at the time. So it, it really drew me to what the expressive qualities were in film music. And one of the huge advantages of being in New York is that you actually do start, if uh, as you're working through the freelance scene, you do start getting session work. So I started actually doing a couple of session works with um, film uh, uh, f- music for film. So I started playing violin in the sessions for these. Um, and I guess in the back of my mind, I'd always hoped that I would eventually get a chance to work with Disney. It's a, it's a convoluted story to how I actually ended up working with Disney. Um, but it, it kind of goes from initially being a violinist on session, I would start getting asked to help orchestrate. Um, so they would sometimes ask me, you know, can, you, can I help them write a violin part? Because most composers struggle to write string parts. Hmm. So I would help them write a violin part out. Then it became, this is when my technology really started kicking in. Then it was around the time that all these composers were transitioning from old handwritten scores or digitized scores to actually having digital studios. They're like, wow, you know all this technology stuff. Can you help me set up my studio? Can uh-huh. you help me do this? The and light that's bulb what I started on. doing. Yeah. That's literally what I started doing is I started helping them set up these studios, these digital studios Amazing. and getting them their software and stuff like that. So um, I started doing that as freelance work in uh, Los Angeles and New York. And at the same time, I had, I had a rather bad shoulder accident that I knew was going to start preventing me from pursuing violin at a very high level. So I decided that it was time that I also look at some kind of permanent residency somewhere. And, and at the time, the US was quite hard to get permanent residency. And so I looked at Canada as an option. My brother was already here. Uh, he had already emigrated to Canada. He was already a Canadian citizen. So I liked that idea. So I emigrated to Canada. I started doing my doctorate at McGill and I was teaching there as well. And then through my time in Montreal, I started working with a film music company. Uh, Initially, again, as a studio consultant and then starting to do orchestration and music editing. And through that company, we started doing a lot of work with Disney. Amazing. So I'm going to play just a minute of the prologue so everyone can actually, when I re-listened to it, I was like, yeah, you're right. I remember being, even as a child, without an interest in classical music, something about it immediately evoked an emotion in me that was planned, I'm sure, by Disney (laughs) meticulously. They're so good at that, right? They're good at it. Okay, let me play it, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment to chat a little bit more about your move to Canada. Benvenuti to Alice in Wonderland. Swagate Alice Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, the ocean girl, Hanya Mida. On 1015. 1015, the hog in Xin chào. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to Lisa in Wonderland. It is 5.54. Jamshad and I are talking about uh, how we have no time to continue talking about his move to Canada that we'll have to um, keep for a part two because, as you can hear, there's just so many things to cover. So, Jamshad, I'll ask you, before we get into your ending song, yeah. um, you know, you've come 
we've skipped over your your life in McGill, your move to Canada. Uh, now you're here as a faculty member and coordinator for the music program, passing along um, some of the excitement that I feel you've you've gathered through your journey and being inspired by teachers yourself. Could you give me a closing thought um, on you know <laughs> reflecting on your life? Uh, what is something that you want our listeners to walk away with? Yeah, that's a, that's a very loaded question, right? One thing, kind of a thing that that we really take away. Do you know? Um, if I'm, I'll, I'll try and keep it short because I know. <laughs> Sorry, I know that was a very wide ranging um, question. Do you know? I I think that there's a couple of things. One, um, I've always had. I've always been fortunate, and I've said this before, I've always been fortunate to have people in my life who guide me, who support me, and who have given me the opportunities that I can then take advantage of. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that I would highly encourage people is to seek out people like that, whether that be in your personal life, whether that be in your professional life. Um, it seems like there were so many opportunities, but that you actually pursued them, where others may have sat in that cafeteria. Um, you were driven to speak to this person and ask about opportunities and ask about next steps. Yeah. Do you know, I think there's, there's, um, there's, there's also another element of my life that I, that I, I do talk about. I'm, I'm a little bit oblivious. Uh, and, and it sounds strange to say, but the fact is, I've, um, I think that so much of the limitations that we have, uh, to a degree, are put by our own psyche. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've always just been fortunate in that either I'm oblivious or, or just willfully ignorant to the fact that, that there sometimes isn't a limit. Mm -hmm. to what's there. So, um, you know, I, I, I would sit down and, and transcribe music when I was young just because I, because I never thought that that's not something that you should not do. Um, I just thought it's always something that musicians do, so I did it. Mm -hmm. um, I always thought that approaching a teacher is just something you can do, so I just did it. So your um, advice would probably be, you know, throw out your preconceived notions of what is right, what is wrong, what you should and shouldn't do, and try... What would your advice be after that? So that I'm not replacing your <laughs> words with my own thoughts. My advice, you know, I think my advice is that, um, well, number one, do put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. um, be willing to take a chance because if you've surrounded yourself by people who support you, if you have a good network around you, you always have people who can catch you and guide you when you do falter. Mm -hmm. And I think that that support is really important to know that you can rely on it, number one. Number two, um, yeah, to not, to not be afraid. The fear is, is probably the number one reason that we hold back. Okay, on that note, Jamshed, I'm so sorry. We have to end the show. Yeah, we do. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna uh, 
throw on the show banjo and fiddle, which is something that you used to play at the end of every orchestra uh, or end of a show. End of every recital that every I did recital. as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a kid. And um, we are going to open up the studio now for John with his show Under the Covers. I am just so happy to have you, John Shed. We're going to have to have you back time and time again <laughs> um, to chat more. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Elise. I will see you next Thursday, everyone. Yeah. Bye.